0: Welcome to Built to Play,
1: games to technology for the arts inclined. I'm Marvin Igbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Game Freak gets its freecon. Sony puts on VR goggles and travels to China, and the HTC Vive still isn't Half-Life 3. Plus, we come back from PAX East with stories of space jumping and monsters. But first, Tom Joubert tells us about loneliness in space and the act of writing. Space is mostly empty. Despite all the stars we see in the galaxy, they are millions of miles apart in different directions. Which might make any journey through space feel isolated. Imagine it, you're four astronauts on a ship hurtling through the Milky Way. You have to trust that you have enough food and fuel for the trip, and if you do decide to stop in an alien world, who knows what you'll find. It's that fear of the unknown and the wonder of discovery that many spacefaring games prey on. One of the best of these is a little game called FTL, or Faster Than Life. FTL makes you a messenger ship in the Federation's army. The rebels are coming to take the capital, and you must get there first. Not that it'll be easy. You're seven sectors away with limited fuel. So on your way to the capital, you could be blasted by the rebel fleet, robbed by pirates, or stranded on a desolate world. Zoltan is deeply dissatisfied with our aiming and demands to be dropped off. We can offer him a 40 scrap to hire him, but I highly doubt he's going to want to be. He responds defeatedly. I suppose I have nowhere else to go without a ship and accepts your offer. Ooh. FTL's universe is randomized every time you play. You'll find novel worlds and distinct events each time. Sometimes you'll get lucky, like in the YouTube clip we just played. Or maybe not. Okay, you find a rebel automated scout floating near the beacon. Despite its pristine condition, appears to be deactivated. Don't risk activating it, just strip the ship for any useful scrap. Or attempt to download the data stores. Are you kidding? Holy sht, this thing is armed to the teeth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Artemis, Artemis is back online. Artemis is back online. Shoot the drones room, shoot the drones room. Oh Christ, Abyss laser, Abyss laser. At what? At these, at these. I don't need those ever firing at me again.
3: Oh my god, oh my
0: god.
1: Oh my god. (sighs) Tom Joubert had to write a lot of those events. He's a narrative designer, and he was brought on to help write the universe of FTL. Or, given how often you die, several
4: universes. As they said in Star Trek a long time ago, it is that last great frontier. We met Tom at PAX East, and he gave us
1: an idea about what it took to write about an almost infinite space.
4: What I find most interesting is that you see right now, you see certainly a comeback in space games, but you also see... I don't know if you'd call it a resurgence, because I don't know if there was ever a time when it was very popular, but a big number of underwater games as well. Why? Because both of those, they give you the same opportunity for new exploration, exploration of a world that is still really unfamiliar to us. Um, And all sorts of possibilities wait there for us. Um, Underwater is fascinating because we know nothing at all about very very deep down in the oceans and we know there's life there so it's like we're guaranteed to find alien life if we go underwater space it might be more alien the life but we're less likely to find it what's not to get excited about the only really sad thing is that so many space games use space for nothing better than an excuse for a, a shooter right when really it should be about the unknown and the danger and and The discovery. Where do you think that FTL fits
1: along that scale of um, the liberation of the infinite and the the terrifyingness
4: of the infinite? Well, it is a funny one because it, it, it has that open structure, but then it also has that very forced progress where you're always being chased down. And that's one of my favorite features of the game is the fact that you're always under that pressure sometimes it's pressure to explore more and explore faster so that you can get more cash and whatnot before the next level sometimes it's a pressure to ignore that impulse to explore and to stay dedicated to getting to the end before you get caught i mean ftl is is it is an ultimately limited space and it's not gonna feel quite as open as as maybe an elite dangerous which we're standing over the road from or uh, or something that's more procedurally generated so it's essentially limited by the fact that we pre script everything and then randomize it rather than really truly do procedural generation um but it's a it's a cool world it gets closer for me as a player to that feel of of star trek and the next the the last great frontier and exploration uh, than any other game that I've played, I think.
1: When you think about how books are written, you think about writing a plot or characters. But Tom couldn't a plot in random order makes no sense. And if characters reappear, then it reminds you that there's a limit to how infinite the game can be. Instead, Tom was tasked with writing a series of generic, but interesting events. They had to be memorable when strung into a story, but not on their own.
4: The, the job itself is so fundamentally different before you even start thinking about these things. I'm not doing this great big long linear script. I'm not doing any cutscenes. not even planning out a story, really. It's all just planning out a back backstory, a, a, a world, and then developing sensible events off the back of that. The key with the events is to make sure that they are doing their best to support all of the different uh, procedural mechanics that are in the game. The game by itself, if you play it, it will generate these awesome stories. The text events just need to provide enough context so that it's It's not just this random shape firing guns at you, there's a little bit of, oh, this guy insulted me, or this guy stole my cup of coffee, or or whatever it happens to be. And then hoping that it all meshes together in a fun way.
1: So, the interesting thing about that is that because the events are random, you kind of have to balance them between not making them too memorable, that if you were to encounter them again, um, you don't say, oh, I've encountered this before, and not making them forgettable so you do have these awesome stories how do you achieve that balance
4: some careful editing certainly um, but more generally it's i mean it's obvious enough when you're developing a particular character with some particular sets of lines that you don't want to do that too much right so for those particular events we have uh, a modifier that makes sure it only turns up so often And then when we're we're planning the game, we have a whole section that just says, okay, 20 generic out-of-fuel events, which we know are going to happen time and time and time again, so we can write them rather generically to make up for that.
1: Tom happened to write a few games that had this kind of isolating experience. After FTL, there's The Swapper, which is coincidentally set on an alien world. And he's written another since then, but he never intended on working on solitary games isolation, or stories about isolation, come with the field he wants to work in.
4: Actually, the very first game I ever worked on was along similar lines as well. The Penumbra series was all you being trapped underground with nothing to bounce off. But I I don't especially like that. You know, someone gave me all the money in the world to develop this full world with proper animated characters and, and all of this, and actually guaranteed that it'd be implemented in a way that was true to what I was doing, then I'd be ecstatic. However, the reality of AAA games development is that usually you have to put up with some money man telling you how your animations are gonna work or whatever. As a result, I focused on these isolationist things where there aren't lots of other characters, and as a result of that, I get a lot more freedom. When you look at something like Talos or The Swapper or FTL, all of my story is basically text-based. I don't need to rely on anyone else to know that that's in the shape I want it to be in. So, yeah, the more lonely the game is, the, the more control I have over the narrative experience, basically. What would be the ideal game for you to work on? You see so many procedural games out there, right? But they're procedural in terms of their mechanics, not so much with their narrative. And in narrative terms, you see all the mass effect and things really polishing up things. And I think that's the wrong way to go. We need to go back to basics with procedural narrative, simplify things down, and see what we can do with it. So I'd like to do something experimental. What about procedural generation makes you make, enti- uh,
1: fascinates you?
4: It's a new frontier. It's, um, I mean, the only reason to be in games as a creative instead of in uh, movies or books or whatever is that in games much less has been done there's so much more to do I, it strikes me when i walk around these shows that it's basically the one medium on the planet where i can look at something and not immediately know what it is i can see something and, and 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 go what is that and then something that i've never seen before will happen on that screen and you can't get that in a movie or or in a piece of music because they've been around forever we're about as good at cutscenes as we're gonna get. We're about as good at linear text as we're gonna get. We're really bad at procedural narratives, so it's a frontier to explore. Um, And it also means it's a lot easier to do well in it because there's not really strong competition out there yet.
1: With, um, I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive to the traditional role of the writer being the thing that intent puts structure in in a game of mechanics. Why do you feel that you, you'd rather go in that direction as opposed to like having something that's more concrete?
4: Because that's what games are about. Um, why, If you want that super polished, super detailed experience, you're never going to get it as good in a game as you will in a movie. Um, Even though movies eventually will turn into like these virtual reality experiences where you look around, um, even then they will still be much more tightly controlled because you won't do very much. You'll just watch. Um, If that's what you want, then watch. If you want to interact with something, if you want to play a game, you've got to be prepared for the audience to bring something of their own to it. That's the whole point is that we can adapt what we're doing for whoever happens to be playing it. So it's, it's just it's a much more interesting place to be.
1: Tom Joubert is a narrative designer based in the UK. His most recent game was The Talos Principle. You can find out more at tomjoubert.com. The Infinite can take you pretty far away, but Nintendo might have an infinite grip when it comes to its game designers. Few of Nintendo's first-party developers leave the company, or, heavens forbid, make games for other platforms. But, uh, Game Freak, the makers of the Pokemon Cash Cow... The Cash Milk Tank, if you will. Will somehow have a game out on Xbox One and PlayStation 4? How did that happen? So... Well, let's get into the context, but it, it, just to kind of preface all this, Game Freak isn't actually owned by Nintendo. They, Despite making all of those games, they are they they ha- they actually are like a separate, completely separate. They're an entity. independent company, though Nintendo has a, a not necessarily a controlling share, but a large amount of shares in Game Freak. Uh, Game they also Nintendo, Game Freak, and the Pokemon Company each own a third of the Pokemon copyright. Right. But Game Freak isn't actually limited to making games for Nintendo. So a couple of years ago, Game Freak Freak revealed they've instituted a sort of Google time policy where if you have an idea for a game, you can work on it in your spare time. I think... What is it, you know, an hour a day or something like that? Yeah. And you can then pitch it, and that can become a game on its own in order to break free of just making, you know, Pokemons over and over and over. They do make a lot of Pokemon games. Um, they have a handful of products from that decision, but they've all been on Nintendo systems, just because I guess they had that working relationship. Uh, actually, their last game, Uma Solitaire, Horse Solitaire, was on <laughs> was on DS, but was also on iOS. And the game before that, uh, Rhythm, um, Rhythm, Rhythm Fighter Harmonite, is a 3DS game. So the the one they're working on now, which unfortunately will have to be bleep, bleeped, is Tembo the Bad Elephant, developed by Game Freak and published by Sega. What is even happening, Daniel? Uh, yeah. Well, to be fair, this actually isn't Game Freak's first time having a game published by Sega. They've actually been on the Genesis before, right? Yeah, they were on the Mega Drive. Never the... I think they made it to the West via some stuff. So they were on the Genesis with Pulseman, which is a super neat platformer with an attack that inspired Pikachu's vault tackle. Huh. Yeah, fun fact. So um, Tembo will be coming out to Xbox One, PS4, and PC. I think it's through Sega. Right. Because Nintendo has a pretty healthy relationship with Sega these days. I mean, Sega and Sonic have... Sorry, Sonic and Mario have gone to the Olympics together. Well, I think also, I mean, Sega really mostly publishes on Nintendo platforms at this point. They have a couple PS4, right. PS4, PS4, Xbox, Xbox games, but it's, they're really primarily Nintendo and mobile, especially with Atlas basically publishing everything that isn't Persona 5 on 3DS. That's true. I mean, I guess that's now that they... They're, since they were at one point competing for roughly the same audience, maybe a little older, mm-hmm. they've ended up basically having games that were primarily for Nintendo users now. Mm-hmm. Which, I guess it makes sense that... Uh, so it makes it, sense they'd work together. I have a feeling, you know, Nintendo going to say Se- Game Freak working with Sega is something Nintendo is totally okay with, and Game Freak working with Sony isn't. And... I- I, yeah, I can see. I can definitely see that. Also, I feel like uh, the reason it ended up on the Sega platform is because it has a swear word in the title. Oh, certainly. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, God, that's where it's so embarrassing. It feels like Game Freaks trying to like pretend to be grown up. What is this game anyway? I mean, we should talk a lot about yeah. like why it's weird. But yeah, so it's, it's a side scrolling platformer starring an elephant who is presumably you know pretty awesome, rough and tumble. Yeah. shall we say. He's got guns and a, bana- and a ban- bandana, and bananas. He clicked bananas, I think. <laughs> um, uh, it, side-scrolling platforms aren't new for Game Freak. They did uh, Harmonite, as I mentioned, two years ago. They also did Drilldozer on the GBA, and Man on Genesis, which are both great. Yep. It, it looks pretty, but it doesn't look new and impressive or interesting in any way. It just sort of seems like, you know, a, an indie game to a certain extent, which isn't a bad thing, but I have a feeling Game Freak can go bigger and better, especially Harmonite, while not being great, is super fascinating. Didn't it they- who made Spectral Knights? Is that a different thing? That's a different thing, yeah. Okay, cool. Anyway, the, um... So, it's interesting to see Game Freak break free of Nintendo like this. Right. I mean, not that they're breaking free very far. Sega's basically, like, Ninten- you know, mini Nintendo at this point. Mm-hmm. Um... But, I mean, like, the fact that they're publishing then on Xbox One, PS4, PC, is kind of a cool thing that at least Nintendo's allowing them to do, that yeah, this I could mean, end up on a place, on a Sony platform somehow. I think Game Freak sort of pitched it to Nintendo, it's like, we cannot make as much money as we used to just publishing on your systems right now. Maybe in a couple of years we can do it again, but right now, you know, Pokemon can stay with you, which is forever the cash cow, but we need to be able to publish on PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo just had to acquiesce. Which is probably another reason they end up on Sega, yeah. which is which makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess, It'd be really weird to see a Nintendo-published game on PlayStation 4. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you'll never see Pokemon on PlayStation, at least not until Nintendo, you know, maybe folds eventually. But until now, we've got Tembo, the crazy rough-and-tumble bleeped-out elephant. (laughs) Now, uh, well, so long as we're talking about uh, traveling from home, the PlayStation is finally um, leaving its home shores of Japan and landing in not actually that far a trip, China. China. Um, though, honestly, you could probably argue that the PlayStation's home shores is America at this point. Oh, well, all things considered, uh, the PlayStation probably makes way more money outside of Japan than it ever it did inside. here, like, a year before it did in Japan, too. Right, right. So, um, the PlayStation, so the console will cost, cost roughly $463 in the country, and the Vita will run about 207 The two <laughs> devices retail for about 400 200 here, too, so it's not really that crazy. Yep. Um, um, in February, China opened up console sales to the, in the Shanghai Free Zone, which was enough for the Xbox One to launch back in September. Uh, Sony originally planned to launch its PlayStation devices on January 11th, but those plans were on hold when the Chinese government asked for changes to the launch schedule. China is such an interesting game environment because it's been so focused on PC because Xbox One and PlayStation um, just haven't had the same opportunity to get there. Nintendo's been there in the form of uh, kind of like... The IQ. The IQ and weird third-party devices. Um... And they, they but these are only being sold within the sh- Shanghai Free Zone, which I mean, like if you're in Shanghai, good for you. But if you're in Beijing, or... I think the IQ is actually all of China. Because yeah, they yeah. had that deal going so long. Um, not that it does like gangbusters, yeah, huge numbers or anything. But I'm sure you know it's a nice profit. It's 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 you know they sell it at a crazy up you know upsell. upsell. Yeah, yeah, but everybody buys in the gray market in China anyway. That's what's so interesting about that market, like. I don't know what Sony's hoping to do there. Yeah, I uh, we think we when last time we talked about um these consoles arriving in China, um it we theorized that um Part of this is because that's where a lot of Westerners end up. So the idea is, hey, look, if you're going to have um, a businessman who's from the U.S. who wants to work in China, um, it makes sense to have like a guy. If you're work, chances are they are going to work in Shanghai, because that's close to a lot of the factories and a lot of uh, the businesses. Um, and while he's there, he might want to play some video games. So here's a way that they can buy it um, locally and actually get games um, there, um, one thing that's, uh, one thing that's interesting is that a lot of the features in the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One are so tuned to the US, but I wonder how a lot of them are going to uh, Yeah, they're very, over. they're internet focused, they're very, you know, Twitch focused. They're Twitch focused and, like, it's weird to have an idea, a console that's all about sharing stuff in yeah. a country that's as locked, that has an internet as locked down as, Um, China's, Um, it'd be weird to suddenly say, like, I don't know is Twitch available in China? I mean, Mm. I assume it is, but I don't know. They probably have their own live streaming platform. And then if they do, like, what to what extent? Like at some point, we had problems with like people being naked on uh, on live streams with their PlayStation Four. What's going to happen with that? Is this that feature just completely disabled? I'd be really interested to see what limitations is, the PlayStation Four has in yeah. China. Also, does the Xbox One uh, uh, Xbox One TiVo scheduling thing work there? Oh, probably not. <laughs> it barely works. But well, Nintendo TV does. <laughs> I, no, no, it doesn't. Uh, if you keep looking other places, keep <laughs> looking other places. Um, <laughs> it looks like uh, we're going to be talking a bit about VR here because if you spell "vive" backwards, it actually spells Half Life Three. Yep, didn't know you knew that. But no, if you, it's just it's just a matter of rearranging the letters in the right yep. order. And if you translate it to, I think you have to translate it first to Aramaic, and then into Old French, and yep. back into English, it'll Half Life Three. Okay. Before we get into this, I do want to confirm that it is Vive and not Vive. It is Vive. Okay. Which sort of makes it sound like a cheap um, back massager, shall we say? Yep. Um, Shoulder massager, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, It does rhyme with its with the company behind it, though Valve. To really some rhyme. extent, <laughs> it, it sounds similar. It, it has as- two V's in it. That's a Please, please, that's assonance. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm using I- I'm I'm using those English classes I took. <laughs> anyway, so Valve and HTC, uh, the-, the the guys you probably know from making your cell they phone, they want to put a vibe on your face, uh, which is, um, and they're very excited about that that fact. <laughs> they're really excited about putting Vibes on your face, guys. Oh no! Okay, so at GDC, Valve showed off their new Steam VR system, which um, Valve had been working on a um, Valve had been working on a, a VR API for a long time. This way that they would be able to the idea being like, hey, look, if you want to make a make a game on VR and you don't know what platform you're going to be making on making it on, use this API, which will supposedly link up with everything. But most importantly, Steam VR will link up with uh, with Vive with the Vive. Which is the newest intra- entrant in the uh, race of the race of stuff you stick on your face? Yeah, the vibe has holes all over the front, so it looks sort of like a sponge or a diseased fish. It kind of looks like a face crab to some extent. Yeah, it's kind of gross looking. Um, but apparently, it's really good. Apparently, it's uh, from what we've uh, what they've heard. It's the system that's giving you the best sense of presence. Presence in a VR sense just means that um, you feel you, like you're actually there. Th- yeah, it's it's not very tangible to describe, but it's basically like. You don't. It, it feels like you have your own sense of place and its own sense of uh, location, Um which has been a difficult thing that like Oculus has tr- been trying to reach for, but they haven't gotten yet. Yeah. You, it doesn't necessarily mean like you feel like you're in another world. Like you don't feel like you. You definitely be able to tell this distinctly from reality. That's a that's a problem with lighting. You'll never be able to get graphics that um that intensively in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. But um, they ha- it has gotten very many positive reviews. Yeah. So what is, uh, what is this chaperone feature that they're going to be working on, though? So the thing the Vive has, the Vive is actually a four-part thing. It's the right. headset, it's a controller, a motion controller that you hold in each hand, and two lasers that you set up called the Chaperone System, which essentially mark off walls in the real world, in the video game world. And as you approach them, the game will warn you that you are about to stub your toe on a wall. So the idea is that you're always, you know, you're never actually, you can walk around and actually move and manipulate 3D space, but you will never actually, you know, hurt yourself doing it. Which is crazy and cool and super futuristic. Um, It's full-on virtual reality. But I also have to wonder if this is something people have the ability to use uh it's kind of like this weird thing with the connect like uh, even at the connect working at its best you needed a living room that matched the specifications of the connect mm-hmm. um and walking around in a room with your eyes covered seems like a terrible idea i feel like the <laughs> I, I feel like you know computers at one point as the vr stuff get more powerful we'll have you know hardware specs and house specs yeah no no at what point will we what point in the future will there be like oh yeah i bought this i have this vr room that i've been building um, this is my holodeck yeah this is my <laughs> this is my holodeck you need to put on this face crab in order to, to use it though so, don't worry it's not diseased so <laughs> Vive is going to cost like a trillion dollars right yeah no it's going to be a billion d billion d dollars and you need to uh, I don't know how people are going to... Apparently, they're going to be releasing their dev kit out soon. So, yeah. if you... Um, in the summer. So, hey, if you... Um, <laughs> if you want to actually work on this platform, it will be available how to How fast soon. do you think there's going to be weird anime games? <laughs> Immediately? I mean, there's already a sex game for the o- Oculus. I'm saying, how fast do you think there's going to be a weird anime sex game? Um, I mean, if, the, if a dev kit, say, comes out in August 1st, September 1st. You're a, a month. whole month? Yeah, I think it's going to take a whole month. August 15th. August, August 15th. I think it's a straight port from the Oculus. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. There's the over-under. So I'm saying under two weeks, you're saying over two weeks. I'm saying, yeah. That's We're that's holding, holding it to it. <laughs> um, so uh, Valve is saying that the Vive is the first of their VR projects, and they're treating it much the same way they're treating it with the Steam machine. So, you know, the low... I'm assuming the Vive is the high end, and the low end is like Google Cardboard but made out of a milk carton. Um... <laughs> So, I don't know if Valve really cares about if VR works or not at this point. They just want to be on everything. Right. They just sort of want to... They're betting on every single possible horse, and wherever it goes, they're winning. I thought it would be really cute if... Because Microsoft for a while had, the, had their game room, the Xbox oh, game yeah, room. Oh, yeah. They had, like, an arcade. Yeah, I thought it would be really cool if you could, like, walk around an arcade, and then as you get more games, like, they make sounds in the background. Uh, and then that I realized totally... how... I realized when I thought about that, that Microsoft may stand on such an opportunity to not have Rare make a new version of, like, the Rock of Fire explosion from Chuck <laughs> Cheese, starring, like, Banjo and the weirdos from Diddy Kong Racing that they own. The funny thing about the, uh, the, the VR controller, though, is that it looks a lot like the PlayStation Move controller, which gets us nicely to the fact that Sony announced that Project Morph- uh, Morpheus, their entry in the face junk genre of technology, uh, will be coming out... In the uh, first half of 2016, that's their big announcement. That's which is crazy. I mean, <coughs> uh, to some extent, we knew we we've known for two years now, a year and a half. A year, yeah. Um, that the, they announced uh, exactly a year ago. Oh, exactly a year ago. So we, we've known for about a year now that they've been working on, on Morpheus. And back then, they said it was going to be a speculative project. Like, hey, this is something we've been working on. It kind of works with PlayStation Eye and PlayStation Move. Um. But we don't know if this is actually going to be a thing. They've officially announced it's a. They've officially announced it's a thing. It's going to be for retail. It's going to be released, and it's never going to come out. <laughs> um. Well, I I would not dare Sony to uh, to to make to. Yeah, do that. I don't know if I could look Sony in the eyes and play with chicken with them. They've already got me on Wonderbook and the Move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where they somehow managed to release both, um, but I mean, who knows? The the pro- the new prototype they showed off this time was um. This is c- the new prototype they showed off, which is crazy. They're making a prototype because they just got out of electronics. Right, yeah. Like, they, they finished that whole thing. We thought that when Sony can't. We thought when Sony and getting are getting electronics, we thought, oh, Morpheus is dead because that's a consumer electronics product. Yeah. But no, they're, they're still making this crazy thing because I guess they they retained enough people behind the OLED screen company to do, well, yeah, the, I guess to do the face like, grafting. I'm assuming it's just like this counts as a game division product. Yeah. I don't know. It's It's a weird. I don't know. Sony Shuhei Yoshida says the pr- the price wasn't a driving factor in building the Morpheus. Even though it features an OLED screen and a lot more tracking LEDs and looks super expensive in terms of the housing. You, you Just like the Valve, which requires like three comp- three to four components, this is going to require a PlayStation Move, the PlayStation Eye, and the Oculus Morpheus. Headset. Yeah. And, and the, the the PlayS- headset. And another PlayStation Move like Nunchuck. Yeah, yeah. So, this is going to be an expensive, uh, limited-use product. Just but... like the PlayStation 3. <laughs> Guys, Shue Yoshida was brought in to fix the PS3's mistakes, and now he is doing them. <laughs> Oops. Apparently, the PS4 was was designed to output at 120 frames per second, which is enough to properly run VR without making you vomit. So, it's not like this was a last-minute decision. Yeah, like, they were really on top of this. They wanted VR to be a thing on PS4, Um and I have to wonder, is VR on consoles a thing we're going to be seeing? I wonder. So Microsoft has to do one of two things here. So they had the HoloLens, which we discussed. The HoloLens. <laughs> Their weird sh- discussion in which they had a guy kick a bunch of blocks open and a mini man appear on the screen. a screen. small man. <laughs> I, I kind of wish Peter Molyneux still worked at Microsoft because you know it, that he would have been the man who appeared. <laughs> I mean, Hi Peter, there. I'm Peter Molyneux. This is, is HoloLens. This is my dream. This is For- my dream. I mean, Please, we, and look that, at this acorn. I and then mean, we'd know for sure it wasn't coming out. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, VR, so either they're have to shift gears or they have a secret VR product that they've been working on I haven't mentioned, or their plan is they're just going to be the ones who support everything. And the, like, oh, yeah, the, the Xbox One also runs at um, 140 fr- uh, frames per second. And oh, it runs at 140, get 70 frames per second on uh, on VR. That's not going to be a vomit-inducing nightmare. <laughs> Um you get one you get 1.2 frames every second every, every millisecond. Oh no. <laughs> um and uh, it'll support Oculus Vive and haha the Morpheus. But... Oh man! Well, it won't support the Morpheus. That's gonna be PS4 exclusive. Not even yeah. PCs. That, that's the thing. Like, is Sony gonna? What do, is, like, yeah. What are they even gonna do? Where'd this go? Like, what, what, is, what is happening? What, what is the Morpheus gonna be used for? Because the, the reason Valve's getting in on this is because oh, developer, we will op- let them do it, and developers will come because on PC you can do that, but on not, like, Sony would have to support this themselves, and they would need to have more than, like, listen, the last time they did something like this, it was Wonderbook and The Move, and they supported those with, what, like, two to three games each? What on earth will, Mor- like, Morpheus support isn't something you can just throw in, like, Move support. Yeah. That's, like, a whole other development I mean, cycle. You can't just toss that in. They would have to make a whole slate of VR games. And but, when, and that's, like, the, the whole point of the PS4 was to not, you know, destroy your market, not to, not to fragment your market share. So... <laughs> your rather your user base so like what is the point of any of this well i mean what is happening sony <laughs> what is happening well so long as we're questioning the void <laughs> in terms of uh, things that Decision Sony is making. Uncharted was just delayed, and we have no idea whatever games exist for them. Nope. So, um, so Uncharted was delayed the first half of twenty sixteen. That same first half of twenty sixteen that, that the Morpheus, the Morpheus is going to be out. So, is Morpheus Uncharted confirmed <laughs> is going to be Uncharted four. Uh, according to directors Bruce Straley and Neil Druckmann, yep, the game was initially slated for November 2015. You know, the lucrative holiday season. Uh, beyond the pretty standard issue of big games getting delayed out of the holiday season and creating a second run rush in March every single year, um, our our wallets <laughs> still more in the spring of 2010. That was a pretty good year. It was a crazy year. <laughs> what is what is going on with their with their first party developers? Like their internal devs? Sli- okay. Uncharted Four is the only game they have set for twenty sixteen right now. As for twenty fifteen, as for original content, they have Bloodborne and Until Dawn. That weird Bloodborne, which comes out next week, and Until Dawn, which we have no release date for, and is some kind of crazy David Cage knockoff starring Hayden Panettiere as Hayden Panettiere, as the girl who screams in movies and is in danger a lot. They're also releasing uh, their you know this year's Major League Baseball game and two HD remakes, one of Tearaway and one of the first Ratchet and Clank. So like, what? what? I- it's, uh, they they have the show, I guess, if you like baseball, and that's, I I'm mean, they're really betting on America-loving baseball. Which it baseball really game. doesn't these days. No, but not. You know, like, it's just, Sony's first-party slate, like, Bloodborne is their biggest game in 2015? The Order of uh, 1886 was supposed to be, but that game clearly came out unfinished. Right, so it's just like, what is happening at Sony right now? How, how is Sony basically in the same state that Nintendo was two years ago? Right, which is like, but they were doing so well until now. What happened? <laughs> I mean, they weren't releasing a lot of content, but they were making the right moves. We assumed they were planning, but it's like, yep. now we're looking forward. like, I don't know what Sony's November looks like. So there are, well, right now, to Unless be fair. Unless they bust out the Stop City 3. So, okay, and that's, uh, that's two things. So right now, there are no games set to come out in November. So, I mean, we're pretty far away from November, but generally speaking, by this point, we know a bit about it.
0: Um, which is
1: so this E three has to be massive, right? Like, this so has to be game after game. There's after actually literally game. not a single game scheduled for November. Yeah, it's as I said. Like September th- has Metal Gear, and Metal uh, Gear Five: The Phantom Pain. The Phantom Pain, um, and that's about it. Yep, nothing else on the TBA schedule. has a bunch of stuff, but you know nothing major really. Yeah, I'd be amazed if this game comes out if um. If E3 is uh, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, is not um, basically all of the, 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 the companies going, no, 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 we totally have games. Um, our consoles are not... Pieces of junk that you guys bought uh, two years ago on a lark. You say that, but, I mean, EA last year was dispelled. But, you know, EA has a lot of stuff scheduled for 2016, (laughs) but nothing for 2015. Like, that was the big deal. Everybody seems to have an idea of what 2016 might look like. I mean, wasn't that last year's E3, though? that we looked at E3, was like, hey, no, 2015 is going to be a pretty good year because it'll have something. We had nothing, guys. No, and 2014 was, you know, 2014 was all, hey, 2016 is going to (laughs) rock. We had nothing. Guys, what is... (laughs) Like the the we I mean we com- we talked about this and I edit, we wrote a tutorial about it just like yeah. games are costing too much. Yeah, indie games are coming out at a great pace, which especially is, on PlayStation. Which is I think what their strategy was to some extent was like, hey, yeah, you can get every indie game known to man on this uh, thing. But right now, that's you know, if I pay <laughs> you, if, if I you, paid four hundred dollars for something I can do on my computer already, because yeah. these indie games can run on my crappy computer. Yeah, what are we, you know, what is this for? I, it's a weird situation that these companies have found themselves in and part of it is budgets the, the fact is like look the order looked great the order also the order looked great it's probably the best looking game I've ever seen to be fairly honest um it is also only like at best two thirds of a game yeah um the reason being, that game had to come out at some point, and they basically said, "Oh, I guess we'll release whatever we have right now and hope it, it survives." Yeah. This next, whatever comes out, hopefully Bloodborne isn't a complete mess. I so mean, Bloodborne can... looks great, but that's one game. and That's a very niche title. Yeah, I, I, it's it's looking hard for for Sony right now. As we mentioned earlier, we visited the Penny Arcade Expo East in Boston. It's a massive fan convention about all kinds of games. Arcade games, card games, tabletop games, board games. We put up two short episodes during our trip, if you want any about what we thought about each day. But overall, it was a fun, exhausting trip where we got to see more than our fair share of fascinating ideas.
3: Like Titan Souls. It's like a game about boss fights, so you get one HP, one arrow, and all the bosses also only have like one HP as well. So you've got to go through this world exploring and finding them and killing them. So you know games where you have to
1: find the enemy's weak point and hit it to do massive damage? That's basically Titan Souls, but it's a little more nuanced than that. The game owes a lot of its design to Dark Souls and Shadow of the Colossus. Dark Souls is about being methodical. You need to be careful about every move because you'll die in an instant. Well, Shadow of the Colossus was about these huge monsters that you had to fight more with your wit than with your brawn. Titan Souls isn't quite either game. Designer Mark Foster explains: The
3: game isn't anything like it, like any of those games. It's just inspired by them. So, like, uh, like the bosses are nothing like really anything you find in any other game because of the way the mechanics work, because of the one hit thing. It's uh, that each fight is like really constantly tense because you're always like balanced on a knife's edge. Like, it can go either way. Like, you can kill the boss or you could die at any moment. Uh, So it it feels a lot different to any of those games. It it probably feels a bit similar to Dark Souls. Out of all of those, like mostly similar to that one. But like the actual sort of uh, concept of the game being like boss fights is more Shadow of the Colossus. And then the sort of aesthetic is like Zelda. That's how we think of it.
1: Yeah, and so, and kind of speaking of Dark Souls and being most similar to Dark Souls, one of the things that's sort of, I think, beloved about Dark Souls and kind of signature about it is kind of the rhythm of playing it. How do you feel like Titan Souls
3: kind of that, that rhythm, the feel of playing it compares? Um, well, the feel of playing Titan Souls, I think, is, is all about the tension in the fights, because uh, you don't get any other powers through the game, so you, you just got the one thing, and you, you get better at using it, so you kind of, like, uh, increase your skill levels and level up in real life, sort of, to uh, become better at the game. So, comparing that with Dark Souls, Dark Souls is more about um, like, surviving and chipping away at the enemies and stuff, so it still has a, a really good deal of tension in it, but uh, this game is more like stripped back, I guess. So it's it's just about that one element, like the, the last hit, basically.
1: The kind of thing that Dark Souls and Shadow Classes, and I mean Zelda as well to a certain extent, ignoring some of the more recent ones, are big on is kind of having a passive narrative. Did you did you guys find your did you find yourself wanting to put in some sort of narrative thread? Because it doesn't at the moment, at least just from the demo, it doesn't feel like there is much of one.
3: Okay, yeah, so the, the game is similar in that regard, like the narrative in the game is like in the background so it's up to the player to sort of seek it out and find it so you can find like uh, cave paintings and stuff like that that tell some of the lore if you interpret it and uh, like the boss names are like tra- they're like in a, an alien language but uh, at some point in the game you get something that translates them all when you go through another playthrough so you can learn more about the game if you like da- the deeper you dive into it basically. So, what what is it like fleshing you know
1: something that was made for a game jam out into kind of a larger experience?
3: Uh, well, we, the game jam gave us like the central mechanics of the game, like the you know the one arrow stuff. So the theme of the jam was you only get one, and that kind of that kind of made the core of the game what it is. So we just took that core and just expanded it as much as we could, uh, and just like polished it down. So. It was, uh, it was pretty much like, the design was that jam, the da- it was all like, it all just spawned from that one idea of just getting one arrow and one HP. Was there anything that
1: you had to throw out while you were making the game, just ideas that weren't working?
3: Yeah, yeah, loads of stuff. Like, we made loads of bosses that we had to just cut from the game because they didn't work or they were too time consuming and too, like, too ambitious and things. Uh, but we, we just tried to polish it down to, like, the best bits of what we'd made uh, and that was pretty much it. When it comes to
1: difficulty, where do you find the line to draw between, you know, marking that because it has a very almost super meat boy style, like you know you're back right when you right when you die. Where do you kind of find the line in between, you know, punishing somebody for dying but not just kind of frustrating them until they just give up entirely?
3: It's it's a pretty difficult line to tread. You know, you gotta it's quite you gotta balance it really finely, and uh, we kind of just make it around what we think is difficult for the situation, So like. Uh, most of the game is quite a flat level of difficulty, and you're just—it's uh, just balanced around what we find like tricky and difficult with the mechanics of each fight. And then towards the end, it gets it escalates to what we think will be a climactic point of difficulty. So like the last boss is pretty tough. Uh, so we just kind of go off instinct and like testing as well, because obviously when we play it every day, we get really used to it, so we think it's easier than it actually is. So when we like get our friends and people to play test it. Uh, they like them playing the game and we, us watching them play lets us know how difficult it is like a metric we use is uh, the number of deaths so when we were make, when we were designing the fights it would be like uh, how many times does someone die against this boss I mean we'd aim for a certain like range based on where they are in the game
1: do you uh, do you see a lot of people just sort of I, I took three deaths on each one I was like alright I'm not doing this here I'm going to do this at home do you see a lot of people just sort of quitting on the show floor
3: not too many actually like a lot of people kind of they, they start fighting one and they're like, okay, I need to beat at least one. And they have that kind of mentality of, okay, just one more go, just one more go throughout the entire thing. So there are a few people who are just like either, oh, I don't want to play this. I don't want to, like, di- like die loads. Well, that's that's fine. Like, I, there's more people who want to carry on playing than I would have ever expected. So that that's kind of awesome. So, yeah, people, some, most people do seem to have the mentality of, like, oh, I want to give it one more try, which is cool. And... Has there been? I mean, there, there obviously been some people who are kind of who, who are beating
1: all of them. Has there been anybody who sort of reacted like? Have you noticed at all? Like just throughout, you know, showing the game, making the game, notice any anybody any reactions? Just like, well, we're not making this for you. Like that, you somebody who is just completely against the idea.
3: Uh, sometimes, yeah, like a lot of a, a thing where if we send it to game designers. Quite a few of them are like they don't like some of the mechanics because the mechanics are punishing. And I think that might be down to like other designers. One thing to have their input on something. Say so they because as, as a designer, you're used to being able to say like, oh, I don't like this. We could change it. So things like the uh, when you die and you run back for the checkpoint, that's that's not fun necessarily, but uh, it's a necessary part of the game. Like that kind of uh, punishment, I think, is essential for the way uh, the, like the bo- the bosses feel tense because you know there's like there's like a penalty for dying. So some people in that position. Uh, Say, like, oh, I don't like this element to it, but uh, we're, we're okay with it. You know? <laughs> and
1: I think people are as well as seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no All worries. Right. Thanks a lot. Mark Foster is a game designer based in Manchester. Titan Souls will be at your local internet game retailer and on PlayStation 4 on April 14th. You can find him on Twitter at Mark and at acidnerve.com not too far away from Titan Souls was loud on Planet X, which, despite its name, doesn't actually have much to do with space. But it has a ton to do with great music. You play as musicians like Tegan and Sara or July Talk, who in
5: the middle of their concert are interrupted by a horde of aliens. And basically as the music's playing, you're having to keep the aliens from swarming your stage using like makeshift tools like bouncers, strobe lights, fog machines, your fans, um, all kinds of craziness. That's Alex
1: Jensen from Pop Sandbox, who, like us, came all the way from Toronto.
5: Pop Sandbox's
1: last big game was Pipe Trouble, which, like Loud on Planet X, comes from a love of classic game design. Alex used to play a lot of Ms. Pac-Man, but he would turn off the game's music. And turned on his own soundtrack. So Loud on Planet X is as inspired by games like Plants vs. Zombies as it is by Canadian bands. Brief warning here, one of the bands he mentions we can't repeat in full on air, so you're going to hear a lot of blooping. So, how did you get hooked up with these bands? These are all pretty established, you know, indie bands. Um, you know, Tegan and Sarah, are a big deal. I was playing um, Guns and Ammunition, which is, yeah. you know, that was, a, you know, that was a really big song this year. How did you kind of get hooked up with these guys?
5: Yeah, well, it actually the first band that we were able to work with is uh, is Up, F- and and they actually did score um, well members of Mike and Jonah did score for uh, for our last game, Pipe Trouble, and uh, really excited to work with them. They're actually doing an original score for this game as well that uh, we're planning on making as a Kickstarter award. It'll be like a seven-inch vinyl, but they've been really helpful on bridging a bunch of intros. And then actually Brendan Canning from Broken Social Scene is also going to do an original score, and he's also been helping bridge a bunch of intros. So um, yeah, and then just kind of started, and a lot of the bands are really excited, and because in this game, you're not just playing with their music, you're actually playing as them with custom attacks, custom to the bands, and um, yeah. So has just kind of started, picked up traction. We're at five now. We're announcing another three when we do the Kickstarter in April. And we hope to get to 12 by the time we launch.
1: And multiple songs for each band?
5: Yeah, two tracks for each, yeah. Okay.
1: So, and the, and the bands are, you know, for the most either kind of indie bands or pop, bands that are popular with the indie scene. Do you find that there's kind of a consistent theme you want to have with this game? Not just with, you know, theme, obviously, you know, music, sound, but yeah. in terms of, like, the what, what songs you're looking at, what the songs are saying, what the songs are, are being. It feels very much fighting aliens with music is very kind of a punk rock ethos to me
5: yeah yeah although oddly enough i think majority of our a lot of big big majority of our headliners are are kind of female leads and even going into pop and uh and we haven't announced it yet but we're moving into hip-hop as well so the whole idea is to get into kind of a cross-section of genres but a real inspiration for it is uh what up does in Toronto where they do this long winter series, where it's a really interesting curated experience, where you can go there and you maybe only know one of the artists, um, and it's not just music. I mean, it's multidisciplinary. Uh, these shows that they put on the long winter series, but you can go there not necessarily knowing what it is, but you know you're going to discover some really cool stuff, and and that's kind of what we're hoping within here is just a lot of bands we're personally really excited about too, and you know like July Talk and, and Mets. Um, they're both going to be down at South by Southwest, which we'll be down at next week. And really excited to, yeah, just kind of uh, hopefully help help grow community together. Yeah. There, So, and and what's really interesting to me is that, you know, the, the
1: intersection of games and music is something that doesn't get talked about a lot because music is often very secondary to people's experience with things. Do you find that you are, in kind of trying to combine those two things, you're also finding this intersection between kind of the indie game community and the indie music community?
5: Yeah, there's actually there's a, a huge overlap, and even that, was what you we are just talking about with the Long Winter Series, I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff there where it's kind of like gaming within it, uh, you know, Hand Eye Society doing showcases at it, uh, the last game we did, Pipe Trouble, the first sneak peek we did was at it, and there's a huge crossover between the two, and actually a, a bunch of the bands that we're working with are, are avid game fans themselves which is partially why they came on, so yeah, there's a, I think there's a huge cross section
1: and as for you yourself is there do you have a favorite song in there already that you want that you want more people to, to play or is there something is, is there one specific favorite part you have right now
5: oh it's tough to say i mean the up the guys i just think are doing such really really interesting and innovative stuff and they've been huge support some massive fans of them but then at the same time i look at like you know uh, july talk i just i just feel like they're gonna break so big in the u.s when they do it's uh it's pretty great and i i across the board i couldn't be happier so,
1: and from a mechanicals perspective, just like the way people are playing, have you noticed that the, do you think that the, um, the, the kind of having to keep the rhythm of things, do you find that it makes people feel like it's more difficult than it would be otherwise?
5: Yeah, I, don't, I think right now, actually, by, by simplifying down to it's a pretty consistent beat. If anything, I think it's actually making it a little bit easier. What we found was harder was when we were doing pattern shifts within the song, and a lot of the time we'd lose the players. So if anything, it's like by keeping it uh, simple enough, I think it, it works for the for a casual player. But then where we can get into more complexity is when we start to integrate stuff like double time, and we're looking at this whole kind of flow state where you maintain rhythm long enough, you'll you'll kind of get into like an amped up mode where you're actually visualizing lyrics and the whole. So that stuff's still to come. I mean, at this point, we're just making sure the core mechanic works. And so far, the response has been great. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Thanks a lot.
1: Alex Jensen is a game designer based in Toronto. They're working on a Kickstarter, which should be up in April. The game will be on iOS and Android. You can sign up for their newsletter at loudonplanetx.com. There was one other game we found at Pax East where the music was just as important as the mechanics. It's called Rain World, and it's a game all about tone. In Rain World, something terrible happened to the world. It's hard to say what, but all you know is that life has changed for the worse. The animals don't move like they're supposed to. Limbs jutter out in random directions, and their spines vibrate. You play as a slug cat, which looks sort of like a long ghost with a cat's face. And the lizards you encounter are just lanky and colored neon. Watching Rain World can feel eerie, especially when the characters interact. You never know how exactly a creature is going to move across the screen and whether it's going to eat you. Which makes your Jacobson really happy because that means everything is going perfectly.
2: It's a mood piece in a way. We're, we're like trying to set a specific mood and we know exactly what mood we're going for but we don't know exactly what everything you see is or we cannot really give in-depth answers about everything. It's more about like... Looking at the thing, taking it in the mood, and trying to trying to find out what you think about it yourself as a viewer.
1: Jor is the game's designer. Back when Rainworld was just a university project, he explored a lot of abandoned industrial buildings around his hometown in Sweden.
2: The, th- the sort of thing we're trying to do here is that we're trying to create environments that you feel have existed for some sort of purpose you see that there are machines that have been doing something but you can quite not quite put your finger on what that thing is and that creates a sense of mystery right because it's like you feel like you're on the edge of understanding what you're looking at but you never quite get there Mm. i I think it's an old art trope like the beauty of decay right Uh, because you have you have two you have two forces mashing together. It's the, it's, the, uh, it's the intentional design of a human being and then it's the, like the chaotic decay of nature. And because both of
1: those are coming together, you get something that's visually interesting. But even after the project ended, he kept working on the game, and it became something he could share with his cousin. The game has like a co-op and a multiplayer aspect, and me and my cousin, when I was developing it
2: as a, as a hobby project, he was like my uh, co- co-op test playing buddy. So he's, he's probably the number one Rain World player in the world
1: right now. Rainworld is a survival game at heart. You need to eat as much food as you can before getting back to your nest, without becoming lunch yourself. But beyond your brain, you don't have much ability to fight off enemies. You all wanted to make a game that made you feel vulnerable.
2: A lot of games play into the power fantasy trope, right? And we are d- doing the exact opposite, because uh, you are extremely underpowered compared to any other creature you meet in the game. And that would be for two reasons, I guess. One is because it plays in well with the mood, like you're this cute little one single character in this threatening world. and If that mood is to work, then the world also needs to be actually threatening. And the other thing is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a situation where you're physically underpowered, but you can be at an informational advantage and you can be at an advantage in terms of wit. And by being smart about the situation and knowing a situation you can play the creatures off each other and you can actually manage to survive a situation that should be hopeless. And the thing with that is that it doesn't, it doesn't work all the time and you will have a hard time in the beginning, but once you actually manage to overcome a situation, not because you had a high level or a powerful be- weapon, but just because you were smart enough to deal with it, then that creates a bigger satisfaction, at least in my opinion than just being powerful enough to handle the situation with violence.
1: Part of that is its procedurally designed animation and artificial intelligence. The game pulls from a collection of possible movements and actions, and that gives the game its dissonant tone. Do
2: whenever you do procedural animation, you end up in the uncanny valley, right? It's like it looks a little bit unnatural because that's the that's the nature of the machine. And If you were to do human characters and stuff like that, then it would look creepy and weird and people would feel repulsed by it, right? But uh, what I've been trying to do with my character designs is I've been trying to like roll with it, work with it rather than against it. So uh, I've been trying to design the characters in a way that is a little bit creepy and is a little bit like unnatural in a way so that that unnatural aspect will actually get, end up like working with, working with the science rather than against them.
1: With all that, Rainworld might still have remained a hobby if it weren't for composer James Primate who found the game online. And once he found it, something about the game bothered him.
0: I had a nightmare one night that Rainworld came out and it had horrible music and it had like sound effects that were like boing boing like the traditional like platformer sound effects and i was like so disturbed that i sent you an email the next day and i was like listen I've got to do the music, I've got a really clear idea, here's these, I pitched him some concepts, and he was like, yeah, I love this, let's, let's work together.
1: James both helps design the levels and builds the music, which allows him to compose levels much like he would a song.
0: It's really easy to just have music that just comes in and is like kind of banging the entire time. And we're trying to have music that more like, you, you're not sure whether it's music necessarily or whether it's like the experience of the character playing through the game. Like we want it to be the mood of the creature that you're that you're playing, and kind of. So we're doing a lot of we're doing some dynamic audio stuff where hopefully we're blending a couple of different elements like uh, uh, environmental sounds, wind, uh, different tones and things that come in. So maybe every time you play the game, it's a different blend for a different region, and maybe you never hear the same audio the same way twice. So we'll see how that works out. Those ten- sound effects and the music. Tend to be slightly different disciplines. How do you manage to bring them together? Something that bothers me as like a, as a sound designer is when if you have multiple people working on a project audio, like often it sounds like the uh, the sounds exist in different spaces. And from from my perspective, I, I try to take like a middle road between the two of them, so you can so I don't know. I think it comes from the same place. If you have a sound designer and a, and a composer who's able to like really dial in the audio experience. It's cool because everything fits perfectly. Like everything sonically fits. Like I know what frequencies the certain sounds that you're going to be hearing frequently throughout the game are. So I can I can create space for that in the in the sound effects and in the music and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I really love that.
1: Um, is there anything that you've you've kind of maybe you just put together back? There's nothing nothing in this build, but. Um, that you think kind of works with what you've uh, built here, just a collection of sounds and music.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, so I originally wrote I wrote a bunch of music for Rain World uh, when it was just like a prototype alpha on source when I first got in touch with you are the programmer and uh, like it's kind of. As the game has progressed, I've taken ideas from those that I thought were really strong and that I've kind of like built on those. There's one like theme that I did um, that I absolutely love and I'm kind of basing the entire soundtrack, uh, the current soundtrack off of this this track that I did for the alpha which was just like I think the 12th track I wrote or something like that. It's been really nice to have this much time that I can like really iterate and find out what's working and not, I don't know. Because usually when you're doing, um, you get contracted for an audio job it's like, oh, we need 20 songs in, like, two weeks. Just do it. And that's cool. Like, you can do it, but it's really nice to be able to, like, live with it for a long time and, like, let these ideas develop. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it's the best work that I've ever done, so I'm really happy about it.
1: What are games that you'd say have done that combination of sound design and
0: um, composition yeah. oh, well? God. You know, I, the, I feel cheesy to say this because everybody is like, oh, Dark Souls, everything, Dark Souls, everything. But the sound design in Dark Souls, for me, is incredible. Like... it goes really outside of the boundaries of what you expect from video games. There's like a lot of weird choral music, there's a lot of like stuff where it's spatial, where you have like multiple uh, audio sources in a a level and as you're moving through it like the the sound changes. There's this level where there's these three singers and you have to kind of like, you have to like rescue the souls of the three singers, whatever. And they're each singing a slightly different tune and as you move through the level you're, like you hear the change of where the different singers are. I don't, it was so beautiful like it was just such a cool experience or you know uh, what it's like Ash Lake where you, you fight that second Hydra and It's just this like white open beach and then there's this like bizarre choral music going on. It's such like an immersive cool experience. I love it. So that, that's probably one of my major I mean none of the music that I'm writing for Rain well, sounds anything like that, but just that like that really rich tone and that like that atmosphere that just draws you in and keeps you in the moment. All right, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. It's, this was a really great interview.
1: <laughs> Yori Jacobson and James Primate are part of Video Cult and are working on the game Rainworld. Their Twitter account is at RainworldGame. Game. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built a play was made with the help of... Tom Schubach.
5: Mark Foster. Alex Jansen. Yulair Jakobson. And...
1: James Primates. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we've been doing and more we can find the show. For usual in the air, and the scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Mondays. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Built2Play, or at our website, built2play.ca. Check out the website for a variety of articles, like our impression of a bunch of games we saw in PAX but did not have the time to mention. As long as you're there, look into our current theme, space. It's all about infinite void and weird fan fiction. Yep. Until then, you can follow me personally, at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen, and I'm a rough and tumble elephant. Thank you so much for listening.